You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. So you might have heard tell or maybe at least noticed that in the social media age, anybody that wants a voice can now have a voice in the public forum. That's for good and bad. But for a lot of communities that have kind of lacked a voice previously, social media has been a way to bring awareness and attention to the things that affect their lives greatly. For example, take autism. Folks that have been somewhere on the autism spectrum now have a way to not only reach out to other people, but to raise awareness and to talk about what's going on in their affected lives. This means that folks that have grown up that are autistic and also their parents and caregivers of people that are autistic, they want a voice not only in explaining their own lives, but they want a hand in how they are portrayed in media and in the wider world. And they also want to say in policy and things that affect them politically. So culture and politics crossing paths with something like autism, which can be a very touchy and sensitive topic, leads to having problems. Case in point, recently the Today Show had a headline on a segment, and it was, quote, why there's a war between parents of children with autism and autistic adults, end quote. Well, that doesn't sound good, and people actually push back at the framing itself, but it brings up the issue of how media, social media, people with autism, people without autism are all kind of clashing in the social media realm. So what do we do with such a touchy topic that crosses so many streams? Well, we want to reach out to our friend Eric Garcia. He has a great new book out called We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Now, Eric is a journalist of great note. Uh, he's worked everywhere from places like The Hill, Washington Post, National Journal, Roll Call. He's written all over the place. He's a journalist by trade, and he is autistic himself, but he didn't write just a straight memoir of himself. He wrote this book using people to tell the story, letting them portray themselves. And then he delves into things like policy and politics and the cultural perceptions of autism, using those stories and those people filtered through his journalism instincts and with a little touch of his own personal story. So Eric is the perfect person to ask about when we see things in social media like the autism debate and explaining to the rest of us how we should approach these things. What's the appropriate way to talk about them? And then when we go to things like politics and policy, how do we make those things more accessible but also listen to the voices of the people that it will affect the most? 
Eric Garcia is going to be the perfect person to talk about this. He's a great guy. He's been a good friend for a while and a good Twitter buddy, so I'm excited to get to talk to him about his great book, We're Not Broken, and we're going to get to do that right on Hertel right now, right after this. Absolutely delighted to have my friend Eric Garcia finally talking on the phone. We've been Twitter buddies for a long time, so I'm thrilled yeah. you're joining me, buddy. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to finally like hear your voice and like you know I've listened to the podcast, but it's good to like actually interact. Yeah, it's it's a great thing. We've 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 been trying to kind of miss each other the last because we're both really busy with the real world stuff. But yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of the book. Before we delve into um, the book itself, though. How does something like autism explode into the culture and politics realm? Because I know social media is a big part of it, but you have these these pieces on morning shows, kind of the Oprah type stuff, but then you have the yeah. science stuff. How did we get to this point where autism is really in the front and center of a lot of cultural and politic uh, discourse right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's it's gone through a bunch of different cycles. So one of the fascinating things when I was looking, when I was going through book research, it's always funny. It's always weird going back and seeing how things are talked about in the past. So like in the 1960s, you know, someone like Brutal Bettelheim was on like talk shows all the time. And Leo Connor, who was the first person who discussed autism really in the United States, he would be quoted in Time magazine. But I think what, I think that you really see a big change in how it's discussed Starting around the 2000s, and I think it was because in the 1980s and the 1990s, you started to see an increased, um, you see better diagnostic criteria being created in the DSM. It's important to remember that autism didn't get its own separate diagnosis from schizophrenia until 1980. Up until then, it was seen as a, it was seen as a symptom of schizophrenia. And if you go back and you read a lot of like old interviews, they use almost kind of autism and childhood schizophrenia almost interchangeably. One thing I've noticed. Um, then what happened is in 1990. Um, with the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, what happened was then schools had to report how many students were uh, receiving services. They had to report that to the federal government. And the IDEA specifically included autism. So that meant that you saw more diagnoses in the 1990s and in the 2000s than you had in the past. So it really, I think people thought that you were seeing an increase or an epidemic, as you saw a lot of news stories talk about autism. But really, it was just there was better diagnosis. We were getting better understanding. We realized it was much more common. Uh, uh, and I think what also happened is that you had a lot. The other difference is that there was a lot of money behind it. So what happened is in the 2000s, Bob Wright, who was the head of NBC Universal, uh, and his wife Suzanne, they helped start Autism Speaks. And really, what you need for anything to get into the public sphere is it really needs to affect somebody super wealthy. <laughs> Um, right. and super rich. So the fact that this happened and the fact that it was the head of a multinational media corporation um, spearheading this effort, that brought it into the public sphere and the public dialogue. And I think that still shapes how we talk about it because there still is a narrative about it because I think there still is a focus on how parents feel or how um, caretakers feel. And there still isn't a lot of focus on how do autistic people feel? But the difference is, I think now, 
as opposed to like the two thousand the two thousands, I think you saw this especially in the twenty tens, and then now especially today, you've seen a lot of those kids who got the diagnoses in the nineteen nineties and then the two thousands, and they got the services, although they weren't they were far from the windfall that they were supposed to be, they've grown up now. And now they're able to push back and they're able to speak out. So you can no longer just do anything. You can, you can no longer talk about autism without expecting autistic people to talk back, so to speak. Yeah. And you've talked about it, not just in the book, but as you've done the kind of the uh, promotional stuff with the book and, and telling your story that, that led you to do the book. Part of the story of autism, it is a very young science. It, like you said, we've only really used the terms from like 1906, I believe you said. Uh, um, 1911. 1911, yeah. 1911, yeah. 1911, yeah. And then, so we're talking, you know, 1980s, you're talking only about 40 years. This is almost like the opposite of what we've seen with the COVID stuff lately, where the science ran way ahead and now everybody's trying to catch up. A lot right. of that stuff you're talking with the parents, it was the opposite, where the parents and the caregivers, they were running way ahead of the science and then trying to beg the science to hey, can you re-examine this and kind of get to where we're at on it? Because it's it got thrown into the psychiatric realm. It got thrown into the institutional realm, and they wanted it yeah. moved into the fore. And that's a big part of the story that leads to what you deal with in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, in uh, Jack Pitney, who wrote a great book called The Politics of Autism, it's a very academic read, but if you, get, if you had the patience to do it, it's a very quick read. It's only like 200 pages. He noted that in the 1970s, what was interesting is, if you remember in the 1970s, there was really this kind of push for consumer health safety or good government things. Like there was Ralph Nader put out books like Unsafe at Any Speed, and there was talks about uh, leaded gasoline. Um, that did it because autism was seen as a personal failing and parents were, you know, they used to call them refrigerator parents uh, as unloving parents. And that was what caused autism that when it, it became then something that existed in the personal realm and it wasn't seen as something that would, uh, that public policy could address at the same time. But it was really parents like uh, Bernard Rimland, though he would kind of go off the rails later, and Ruth Christ Sullivan, who tried initially pushing back when uh, and tried including autism in the larger discussion about disability. So, for example, um, in the 1970s, when the Developmental Disabilities Act was reauthorized or was passed, it the second part of the legislation had the establishment of the protection of rights of persons with developmental disabilities. And parents pushed really hard to include explicitly autism as persons with developmental disabilities have a right to appropriate treatment, services, and habilitation for such disabilities. But they were, they, were they were often pushing back against scientists, against professors, among academic, pushing back against academics. So they were really, uh, and what's interesting, and, and I read about this in the book, one person who was following this early on was um, the first lady of Arkansas, Hillary Clinton, because she was, she was living in Arkansas at the time. And she became really good friends with the mother of an autistic son in the 1970s. And having studied at the Yale Child Study Center, she had seen all the science on autism, but then meeting this one mother, she realized, wait, maybe we have the science on this wrong. And then, of course, the science proved that it wasn't caused by unloving mothers. It was caused, you know, it's, it's genetics. So, but like you said, it was parents pushing back and then, event, and then now it's autistic people pushing back. But like you said, it was like, it was advocates outside of the academic realm really trying to push back on this kind of sanitized and almost medicalized language around it. 
And I love that you bring up the language right there because something I wanted to ask you about, especially listening to all the interviews you've been given and you've kind of, you know, the the article, you've talked about the article that led to the book was kind of your first real public discussing of you being autistic yourself. Uh, yeah. You've talked a lot about the terminology and I, and I wanted to ask you about this because it really, really struck me. But you talked about how misusing terms like high functional, low functional, these sorts of things. And the term you used was you said that flattens the experience. Can you explain that to folks? Because that really struck home to me. My mom was a special ed teacher. That's language I've heard from her for years and years and years. But flattening the experience is huge when you're dealing with a group of folks like this that are trying to get their voices heard. Yeah, and you know this, uh, and actually, West Virginia, your mom, your mom can probably attest to this. West Virginia was one of the few state, was one of the first states that focused on autism specifically, um, and it's interesting to me because I think that if you say that someone is high functioning, like a lot of people would say that I'm high functioning, uh, and I think even like five or six years ago, I would have said I was high functioning. But I think what happens is that when you say someone is high functioning, that almost erases their legitimate needs. Because it says, says like, oh, well, someone's high functioning. We don't need to spend too much time on them. Or in schools, we don't need to spend that much money on them, you know, because that's what, you know, as, as your mom can attest, like, you know, resources are money. Um, but what it does is that it almost says that you, it, it, it delegitimizes their needs. And it almost erases them and it says that well we don't need to spend that much time and that much money on them and we don't need to we 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 don't need to focus on we don't need to focus on their needs as much as we do uh quote-unquote low functioning at the same time i'm not a fan of the term low functioning because i think that it sets the it sets the expectations criminally low for people who need around the clock care who might not be able to speak who might have intellectual disabilities, it says that um, their expectations, it sets the expectations low, and it says that, well, they, they, they're never going to amount much to anything. So on one end, it says, like, you could wind up saying, well, we need, you know, they're going to need 24-7 care. But on the other end, it's like, well, do we really need to spend that much money? If they're low-functioning, they're not going to amount to anything. So it, 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 in some ways, I feel like the terms high-functioning and low-functioning do a disservice to uh, autistic people of any type. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really, calling someone low functioning doesn't really describe what they need. So I tend to prefer the terms high support needs or low support needs because it's more descriptive of what they need rather than how they are perceived. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. And, and I think what you're describing is, When you have something like the autism spectrum, which runs from people that need, you know, almost 24 hour care to folks that you wouldn't know unless they told you folks like you that kind of self-identify when you have that wide of a thing, there really does seem to be a major issue of when you're talking policy. Now you're talking money. Now you're talking recognition. Uh, there's there's a gatekeeping issue element to all this, and I think that's part of some of the things you're touching on in the book is, and why you kind of went with the personal stories trying to tell them is there's a gatekeeping issue with these issues. Yeah, absolutely. So one per- person I interviewed is a person by the name of M. Remy Ergo. They're a professor at the uh, of English at the University of Michigan, and they were diagnosed in college. And what was interesting was that they had this, is that people almost said that 
oh well you're asking for accommodations because you're being whiny because like by virtue of them being at university they couldn't possibly be disabled when we know that's not true you know we wouldn't say that to a person in a wheelchair right we wouldn't say that oh well you can't possibly disable because you because you're here at university and you can get around campus um, but somehow we think that's okay for autism for adhd for other things um, so we we wind up erasing their experiences, and then by also by saying that someone's low functioning, we almost say we almost exclude them from really important conversations. We exclude them from talks about education. We exclude them from talks about independent living. We exclude them from discussion from so many discussions to their detriment. And one of the things I really appreciate the book, and it's We're Not Broken, the changing, the converse, changing the Autism Conversation by Eric Garcia. You, you really need to read it. I really enjoyed it. One of the stories in the book, because you use these people to tell the stories that really struck me because it goes to that parenting part of this, was the Williams family, Corey and Chris. You have yes, this whole, You have this whole family unit. And yeah. I, I say unit on purpose because they're all together and it's like all these things that are kind of disparaging uh, narratives in the autism discussion. They all have it in house because they're they're all like that and they're all facing it together and pushing forward. And I found that to be a very powerful story. I love let me just go on record as saying I love Chris and Corey and their kids. Uh, and they, I was really not sure about writing a chapter about family and relationships, but then my editor, as editors should do, kind of pushed me toward it. And in the end, I was already going to San Francisco. I was already going to the Bay Area, and I went, and they, they, they were the perfect kind of, they, they, they set the tone perfectly because I think what they, what it did is that there are so many anxieties about autistic people becoming parents or parents worried about their kids fates once they get the diagnosis but it was all but it's it, i think that if you were to have chris and Corey here they would tell you being autistic makes them better parents for calvin and charlotte ruby and cassidy uh they uh they you know their children it helps them understand their kids and it helps them be in tune with their kids in a way i don't think that they otherwise would and also them having their children be autistic helped them understand themselves so i think that that was also just important was they grew up in a time when there wasn't a lot of understanding about autism but because their children grew up in a better time that actually helped and in some ways saved them and helped them be be great parents and i think they're the, they're just the loveliest people i've ever met so you're not just you know the writer here you're also a journalist when you approach a family like that and you're trying to put that you know journalist hat on of like okay I have to interview these people. How do you even approach something like that? Because you know they're obviously tight knit. They obviously yeah. are used to people, you know, not not necessarily even a bad way, but just questioning them and cur the curiosity level of something like that. How did you even approach that? Because I I know that's got to be kind of touchy to some folks. How did you get get in with them to kind of get the the wonderful stories that you got out of it? Chris reached out to me initially because we were just writing about. Uh, we were just writing about his experience with work because I knew some. I knew a guy who I interviewed in the book by the name of John Marble, uh, who's just one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. Ever met. 
And Chris just stood out to me. I'd seen a few talks of his about the work that he does, um, making the place that he works square, make, uh, making that more accessible for autistic and neurodivergent people. And I just thought this guy's interesting. And then he told, and then I read something that he wrote about his, uh, how he got diagnosed and it was through his daughter. Uh, and then he mentioned that his wife was autistic. And then he mentioned his other two kids were also on the spectrum. And that really, and then like, I was just like, so we already had interviewed and we had already spoken and then I just I, I, I said to him, uh, I think that I could um, I would love to speak with your family and I would love to visit your family. I'm already going to be going to get the, going to the Bay Area of California. I would really love to visit your family. And, you know, I promise. I'll, and I think it was also because I'm also autistic and because we have that similar kind of shared experience that allowed me to that, that kind of. Uh, you know, obviously, he, I still needed to build trust through other ways, but that showed that I'm from that community, and I know what it's like to be misunderstood, and I know what it's like to get to 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 not be fully uh, to, to to have your humanity um, question. So I really wanted, so I wanted to show him that I wanted to that I wanted to prove that his family was just as legitimate as any other family, and. I went so I went in with that mindset of how do I write about a family that's autistic and I um and then I walked away with my expectations I I, I walked away with my expectations exceeded because I thought I was just going to write about him and his wife and I thought I was just going to talk with them and then throughout the day you know as you know you have kids it's like you know the kids were coming in and out and they were talking with me and they were talking with the parents and I was really able to get this uh, get this picture that I didn't even expect I was going to get by seeing just in, in some ways they were your average normal. Uh, family in the Bay Area of California that was autistic, but and it was just that they were autistic. That's the only difference, and that animated how they how they how they are parents. But it didn't. It also didn't. Um, it wasn't a detriment. It just meant that their family was different, and they adapted and they adjusted accordingly, and it made them better. And it made them a better family. I, you mentioned John Marble. Uh, he was yeah. the other one I was going to ask you about anyway, because the story of how he. Uh, started dealing with uh, his own autism, just yeah. blew. You want to talk about the people 20, 30 years ago that had their stereotypes. Here's your stereotype breaker right here with his story. So right. tell folks about that because that one just blew me away. John's story, for those who don't know John Marble, and I hope I've been getting on him to write a book because his story is just fantastic. Oh, yeah. I bought it. He, uh, he uh, he got his start uh, interning in the Clinton administration, um, and he wound up working for Al Gore's presidential campaign. Um, if you ever have him on the podcast, ask him about his experience, his stories with Al Gore because he's got some stories. Uh, and then what happened is he worked on various campaigns. He worked for the Stonewall Democrats. Uh, he worked as a journalist for a little bit. And then he worked on the Obama campaign. And then he worked in the Obama White House. And he was a, he was a presidential appointee. Um, and it was while he was there that he realized that he would sometimes, he thought he was going deaf. And then he realized, and then he went to his doctor. And then he kind of saw the autism diagnosis creeping up on him. And then finally he had a, a breakdown when he was visiting his friends, um, I guess, out of the, uh, like, 
for a cabin trip and then he had a meltdown and he realized, okay, I know that I have autism. And in the meantime, uh, he, told, he talked to a friend of his who he knew he was spitting out at work and then his friend, uh, then another guy by the name of Ari Neiman, uh, who was the who was the first openly autistic presidential appointee, he was introduced to him and they kind of met. And then Ari did, I know Ari, I've known Ari for many years now. He did this thing where he kind of screwed with him where they had coffee at a, a you know, uh, not too far from the White House. And then uh, Ari noticed that, you know, John, you're kind of overwhelmed. Um, why don't we go back to my office where it's a little quieter? And then when they went back, then John realized, okay, yeah, I know I'm autistic. Because, uh, like, he realized the sensory processing things. But John now, so he he worked, he continued working in the Obama administration. He worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign. And then now what he's doing is he helps consult companies to help autistic people find good, fulfilling, integrated, meaningful labor and employment. And so it's fascinating because he went from being in complete denial that he was autistic. Because he just did, he was just like, no, 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 that's not me. To fully embrace, not just embracing this identity, but also wanting to give back to this community and make sure that they can live the most fulfilling lives now. And he's just an incredibly uh, dynamic and an incredibly brilliant and incredibly just open-hearted person. Like everybody I know who has met him just falls in love with him. Um, uh, you, you know, and, and in interviewing him and getting to know him, I fell in love with him as well. Like he's just, he's just fantastic. You've, uh, I get to follow you and I've seen how the book's being reviewed and, and response and people, the response has been really, really good. But what we don't get to see, because you're up in front of it and you've talked about the responsibility of this, but we don't get to see the people you wrote about. How have they kind of been doing? Because we've also had the pandemic since you started this project. And yeah. now, uh, so obviously we're dealing with people that, you know, have sensory type stuff here and everybody's had a rough 18 months or so. How are they responding to the book? How are they doing? Uh, We see that you're doing great and we're thrilled for your success, but how are those folks doing? Have you been in touch with them? Uh, These great stories that we connect with, you know, how are they doing now? You know, some of them have had, some of them have had COVID. um, And that was, that took a toll on them. Uh, Some of them, uh, others, you know, have been able, have been, have done really well. I know that Chris and Corey, they still are raising their kids. They're still, you know, trying to, help their kids with school during a pandemic. Uh, the, you, you know, the, the Rosa family is, you know, the other family I profile in the Bay Area of California with Leo Rosa, they're still, you know, plugging away. They're trying to make sure that their son Leo gets, you know, all their services and accommodations they need. Uh, you know, uh, Lydia Wayman is still trying, is, is, you know, still living with her family and she's, she's no longer in, she's thankfully, she's not in institutions and she's living interdependent, interdependently with her family, which is good. So I've been in contact with them and I've been really, uh, you know, adamant about trying to maintain contact with them. But I mean, they, you know, at the same time, the, the thing that you think about is cause, um, I, I, I know that I've been plenty fortunate to, um, to get through this pandemic. Thankfully I haven't been sick, but like, uh, something I I was reading one study a few weeks ago, even saying that, um, you know, autistic people in Pennsylvania were 2.5 times, I believe more likely to die of COVID-19 than, um, than neurotypical people. And a lot of that is just because they're in congregate care settings where, which, you know, is, it can be just, uh, you know, a death trap for COVID and a Petri dish. So it's still tough. And a lot of people are still having trouble coping with it and dealing with the isolation and dealing with, um, 
in, in dealing with finding work or finding employment, but others have have you know are trying to pluck away, and you know they're all trying to navigate it. So it's so it's it's tough for you know they're doing the same thing we're all doing. Uh, your day job is actually to cover Congress now. You're spending a lot of time in D.C. in the halls of power or vacation yeah. as of late. Um, Policy-wise, we, we touched on it earlier, but, you know, the ADA is 30-some years old. The IDEA is about the same age. Policy-wise, what's going on in that realm of these things? Because you've talked about we have this generation now that are in their, you know, 30s and 40s. Policy-wise, what's really coming, do you think? So the— the real things that are really being uh, discussed right now, as far as disability. So what happened is, in president, as you know, President Biden and Democrats are trying to um, get, uh, are, are trying to pass through the reconciliation package uh, with the budget resolution. As part of that, uh, they propose spending $400 billion in Medicaid home and community-based services, which is to say that um, you can receive your service, disabled people and elder people can receive their services instead of an institution, they can receive it in their home. Because as of, because right now the wait list, depending on what you read is uh, for, for it is, can be anywhere from like 700,000 to 800,000 people. I've heard stories of parents getting, putting their kids on the wait list in Texas as early as 11 or 12 so that they can get on the so that they could get their services when they're teenagers or when they're when they're 18 years old. So that's the big fight right now spending $800 is, is getting that $400 billion on home and community based services and it's going to be and it's going to be very very it's going to be a slog and it's still being a slog because as you know moderates like uh your buddy Senator Joe Manchin and um Senator Kirsten Cinema don't necessarily support the whole 3.5 trillion, um, and but it's, it's but it's it's going to be tough. The other thing that happened is earlier this year, as you know, the uh, the minimum wage was not included in the COVID relief package. Uh, that would have raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. But what was also included is it would have ended sub minimum wage, because right now it is legal to pay disabled people below the minimum wage with something called a 14C waiver. Uh, that of course the minimum wage increase failed, but that would have uh, also ended sub-minimum wage labor and sheltered workshops. Um, the other big fight that's going on is there is also a push to include in the budget resolution uh, raising the amount for supplemental security income to 100% of the federal poverty rate. Right now, it's something like 79%, I believe. This would raise it to 100% of the federal poverty rate. Um, so that that's that's the other um, that's the, the that's the other big fight. It's not, I don't think, in reconciliation yet, but I think if but there's a push to include it in the final reconciliation bill. So those are the big those are the big fights coming down the pipeline. But what's interesting is that um, you've seen even in Republican states, states that aren't necessarily big fans of raising the minimum wage, in places like South Carolina, they're debating rate ending sub-minimum wage labor. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican and not anybody's idea of a squish, uh, signed legislation to end it so that people who do contracts with the state of Texas can't pay disabled people minimum wage, sub-minimum wage labor. So that's another fight that's been going on. You're seeing some incremental success. It's It's been a boon to a lot of families, but the SSDI system has never been a real good, perfect fit for folks like uh, 
things like the autism spectrum. Is right. there any way to really? I mean, I know part of it is just out of design, and you you gotta you gotta get the help where you can get it for these families. But at some point, there probably really should be some reform and 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 some breakdown of, hey, there's different kinds of disabilities. We should have different kinds of systems instead of just hobnailing everything into one system, right? Right, and I think the other I know thing that's Pollyannish, that, but it's 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 but, a problem. No, yeah, I, I, it is a problem, and like I, you know, I hate to be Mister Doom and Gloom, even though that's kind of my brand. Um, but it, it, it's like you know, there's like there's almost no cliff. It's like either you have too many assets and you're off the cliff, or you have a have enough. So like you basically people are stuck in in poverty. And then also, I don't think that these programs were made with autistic people in mind because there are some people who are disabled who probably can't work, but because they're not seen as disabled enough, they still are denied that even while they have trouble finding work. So they're stuck in this kind of feedback loop. On top of that, uh, you, you know, as you said, as, as I said, it's, it's, it's below, it's, even the amount of assets you're allowed to have is below the federal poverty line. So you're not, so it's not even that you have to live in poverty. You have to live below poverty to even be, uh, to even be eligible to receive these services. And there's no way to like, you know, it's not like you can, uh, okay, if I get a job and I start doing it, that they slowly start tapering off this benefits. It's usually just all or nothing. The uh, it's funny because the subtitle of your book is changing the autism conversation. Seems to me like the big technology push uh, now of you know working from home, being able to be you know creators yeah. in different spaces. This seems like it would be an absolute boon to folks yeah. who can kind of pick their own destiny, or or folks that maybe need some sensory type things. Where an office yeah. environment is probably just living hell for some of these folks, but maybe they could have a home environment they could work on. I think technology might be one of these things where it's going to run way ahead of the policy a little bit and really, really help some of these folks. Yeah, my friend David Perry, he makes this argument all the time. He's he's I believe he has dyslexia and his son is autistic and has Down syndrome. Um, and he's written about this a lot. He says that everything that was made accessible during the pandemic has to stay accessible. Um, and I believe that wholeheartedly. And I think once again, the pandemic, like everything, you know, like everything with disability, the pandemic was had its pluses and minuses for disabled people. So on one end, like you said, it allowed you to create, you know, when I have my, when I'm working from home and I have my own office desk environment, I'm allowed to create my own environment so that it's not overwhelming sensory wise. I'm allowed to have my headphones on. I'm allowed to do that. Uh, at the same time, I think that it also can make it difficult when you're corresponding with people um, and you're, uh, you, you know, when you're talking with your supervisor, things like that, because you can't read their facial expressions. So there's only so much you could say over chat or over Slack or over some kind of thing that you can't necessarily read from their facial expressions or their vocal inflections. Um at the same time, I think that it's also allowed people, it's allowed you to connect. As a journalist, it's allowed me to connect with people who I otherwise wouldn't have thought of. Uh, you know, as a reporter and as an interviewer, it has allowed me, it's allowed me to think, maybe I should reach out to people who can't necessarily speak with their mouths, but who can type and interview them and take them seriously and take their words seriously. I don't think I would have done that as much had during, before the pandemic. So I think that one of the things we have, that employers have to think about 
is what were the things that allowed our disabled and particularly our autistic, our autistic employees and every other disabled kind of employee, what were the things that allowed them to be good and productive and be, and be, in a, be generally in a positive work environment that happened during the pandemic? And that what were also, in the same respect, what were the gaps and what were the things that we had trouble with that we can ameliorate whenever we do go back to the office or something? Is, is that kind of maybe a more attainable goal for the near future besides just the policy stuff and things like that? Cause I think I, it is. Because I like, when I talk to my mom about it, because she, she did special ed for 35 years. She goes from the late 60s when, you know, they didn't even know what some of this stuff was uh, yeah. to the modern age. And if you ask her today about this stuff, she never quotes you educational stats. She always quotes quality of life. She'll quote you like, hey, when I started to where I retired, Down syndrome's double the life expectancy. That's the stuff she yeah. brings up. Is it more that we should be focusing, especially with the technology, especially with the ability of folks now to tell their own stories through social media and other means, we focus on that sort of part of this of, hey, we can just open up the world to all these folks through really readily available means. The policy stuff's kind of an uphill push, but this is something really easy we can do right now pretty much anytime. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think you can I think you can do short term and long term at the same time, right? You can. I think that right now what we could do is we could focus on those things. Those are things we could do in the here and now. How do we make offices more adaptable? How do we change company culture? How do we, um, and then more importantly, how do we include people in the people who will be affected by this in the decision-making process? You know, uh, one of the things that I haven't seen almost any company do as companies are, tr are debating whether to go back into offices is I haven't seen any of them talk about accessibility needs. Um, but that is something that could be readily done because whether you know it or not, you have disabled people working for you. Um, even if they have quote unquote invisible disabilities and they're like me and you're, and they're, you're autistic and you're not necessarily even included in the stats about diversity and inclusion, um, you have disabled people on your staff and you should be even just doing an open call to allow people to have a say in how these places, these workplaces are conducted could be it could seem like the smallest thing, but it could move mountains. So once again, it, you, you know, like you said, that's a great thing for the short term. It just requires employers to listen and it requires them taking it seriously. Not to put you on the spot a little bit, but one of the reasons you and me get along is we both, you know, we, we're pretty successful. We're very blessed people, but we've also have life kick us around a little bit. And to get us to this yeah. point, what, what is it that's changed with you? Because I know you you didn't do a straight biography. You kind of told the story through these other people, but it's still you. It's still you on yeah. the page. Where are you at now where you weren't, you know, two, three years ago when you started this pro this process with the book and kind of where you're at now and go, wow, that's that's where I'm going to take out of this process when I go to my next thing or as I go forward. I think I learned to be more patient and more mature. You know, I was I'm a very impatient person. Uh, I like instant gratification. Um, but I think the process of writing a book and then also dealing with, I think also interviewing people where it may take them more time to communicate or they may not get back to me immediately or they have more, they have, you know, they have bigger health priorities or, you know, support or educational priorities and I needed to be patient with them. It made me more patient. I think the other thing is that I learned that as I learned not to be so self-critical and because um, I think a lot of times what I do is I, I can be very, very self-critical and that can lead to very self-destructive things. Um, so I've become, so I've worked on becoming less self-destructive. I'm not always 
perfect at it. I still do self-destruct at times, but I become more, I become, I've, I've learned to channel my own frustration in ways that don't, that I don't completely kind of sabotage myself. Um, and I think the other thing is that I've learned to have more, the, the fascinating thing about this that I'll say is that meeting so many different types of autistic people, um, Yes, I wanted to, yes, the goal of this was to show their humanity and to argue that they, they're fully deserving of being treated as human beings, but it also allowed me to be more charitable toward myself. I don't think, I think that one of the things that I realized was like, okay, it's okay if I get burnout or if I have sensory or I'm overwhelmed by my sensory processing. It's okay that, you know, I have difficulty executive functioning or have difficulty, um, staying on top of every task and every project. Um, if I'm doing my best, and if I'm doing my damnedest, then it can be then okay. And, I, and it's okay to also ask for help. And it's also okay to, uh, to even when I, you know, come up short to try again the next day. So it's, it's allowed me, so doing this has forced me to be less hard on myself, which is something that, and, it, and it's taught me that there are also plenty of different ways to be autistic because there are plenty of different ways to be human and we should expect those different ways that we should treat those ways of being human you know as as anything else so so i think that i think that's how i changed well you did a great thing with this book uh i recommend it to everybody i did get to read it and i appreciated that uh we we're not broken changing the autism conversation eric garcia you're still out uh, doing events with the book so tell folks where they can find the book what you have going on with it and also where they can find you on things like social media my friend yeah so you can follow me on twitter at eric m Degar uh, at uh, eric m garcia that's where I, I tweet way too much um then uh I all you can also find me. I'm going to be speaking at the University of Delaware on October 6th. I will be speaking at Quinnipiac University on October 29th. I will be on NPR's Life Kit uh, through the Library of Congress's National Book Festival next week on September 7th. I will also be at the University of Chicago on November 12th. Then you could also buy my book uh, wherever booksellers are. You can buy it on Amazon, IndieBound, your local bookshop. Uh, if you want, if you want, you can if you you can also request it at your library if it's not available at your local library we will get that through so you can get it wherever you uh it's also available on ebook apple books uh wherever you get wherever fine books are sold and he also does a lot of reporting by day so follow all that stuff too uh my friend i'm so thankful for the time for this and i appreciate you thanks for the time and i just continued success with it because i think it's not only a good book i think it's an important topic so thanks my friend thank you so much andrew no problem sir know in an interview that Eric gave about what his favorite part of writing this book is he said and I'm quoting I consider interviewing people to be an immense privilege and earning their trust to tell their stories and an enormous responsibility I take incredibly seriously autistic people have been misunderstood as long as autism has existed as a diagnosis and oftentimes authors write about autism without autistic people's input so I wanted to refocus them as the center of the narratives the other thing was learning how many ways there are to be autistic in the world and how none of them are any less valuable or more valuable. The more I interviewed other autistic people, the more I came to understand myself, end quote. One of the things I've always thought about when dealing with issues like this, maybe it's because my mom was a special education teacher, was that the thing you really need to take into trying to understand somebody different is that if you take the time to understand their experiences and the way they view the world, what's going to actually happen in the end is you're going to get a better perspective on who you are and understand the world a little bit better. 
taking the time to consider other people's voices, and especially in a community where the people that are they themselves, that community, and dealing with those issues and circumstances in life, and letting them be their own voice, makes everybody better, because it gives us more perspective. It diversifies us in all the best ways. Why in the world would you ever want to silence voices on an issue like autism by not including the people themselves that are autistic? And while I understand in that community there's somewhat of a debate about whose voice and more and all these sorts of things, maybe those of us that are not in that community need to just do the takeaway of empathy starts with understanding that we need to do a lot of listening. And when we start talking about things like political policy and trying to help some of these folks, the first thing we need to do is have a little bit of humility of understanding that we don't know what's best for them. We should just listen to them and let them tell us how to help them best and how to get them not to a number or not to some policy goal or not to something, whatever arbitrary thing you want to set up. The goal of trying to help folks that are in a community like the autism community with policy is to let them have the most freedom and the most liberty and the best life they can possibly have as Americans, just like we should be doing for absolutely everybody else. It's a great book. I hope you pick it up. I thank Eric Garcia greatly for being with us. That's it for this edition of Herd Tell. Uh, we took a little bit of a break for a couple weeks. Folks were asking. Part of that was purposeful. We were going to take a break right around that time. Also, the Afghanistan situation happened, and we didn't want to comment on any of that until it was over. That'll be in forthcoming episodes. Continue to please follow and like and comment wherever you're listening to this, whether it's uh, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. We greatly appreciate it. We're doing this because you listen and you've responded. We're well ahead of where we thought we would be with this program as far as listeners and people sharing it. So thank you very much for that. As long as you keep listening, we'll keep doing it. So until next time, wherever you and yours are, we hope this finds you well. We hope you all are happy and joyful and having the best life you can be. And until we talk to you again, y'all take care of yourselves. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.